So John chapter 1, and, and we've been a couple weeks now in this study uh, since the beginning of the year and, and making our way through. And uh, boy, this is just going to be a fun time looking at God's Word, going through the book of John. Last week, we kind of really focused on the wow factor of the Word and the Word that John mentions that was in the beginning was with God and is God is who? Jesus Christ. Well, so now today... We're going to expand on this a little bit now. Last week we looked at just the blessings that we have because of the Word, because of Jesus uh, and, and all that He's given us. Um, and so today we're going to look a little bit more at this Word, Jesus, but now as He comes onto the scene and as He now begins to interact with and call out His first disciples. So we now really see this Word in action, who came and dwelt among us in the flesh, became like us, to be with us, to do the work for us. And so this is the one that we are speaking of. And so before we get into the life of Jesus, we're going to look a little bit more about the guy that came as the forerunner, who is John the Baptist, not the writer of this book, but John the Baptist. And we're going to look a little bit more at his life and, and his ministry. But here's the three things we're going to break down in this chapter, or the remainder of the chapter, because we pick it up in verse 19. And so we're going to see the inquiry of the Jews, verses 19 to 30, uh, sort of 28. Then we'll look at the identification by John, verses 29 to 34. And then the invitation from Jesus, verses 35 to 51. All right? So the inquiry of the Jews, the identification by John, the invitation from Jesus. Look at verse 19. It says, Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, John, when he came onto the scene, it would have caused a bit of a stir, I'm sure, because he comes onto the scene in a very unique way. In fact, it tells us in Matthew chapter 1, or sorry, Matthew 3, verse 4. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. So this guy comes on the scene and people are like, what's up with him? What's this all about? Camel hair, that can't be too comfortable. He comes out in the wilderness, preaching and baptizing, eating locusts. I mean, this is not the kind of gourmet food that most people would be wanting to enjoy, but he's causing a bit of a a stir, a bit of a buzz is getting associated now with John the Baptist. So you've got now, it says, the Jews who are picking up on this and wanting to kind of find out about this. Now the Jews, this term that John uses for the Jews is speaking more than just, you know, the general population of Israel as everyone that was living in Israel, was an Israelite, was a Jew. This is not who John is really referring to or speaking of. In fact, when he uses the term Jews, which he uses some 66 times in the gospel here, most of the time he's speaking of these religious leaders who are often in opposition to Jesus. All right? When Jesus, when we really get into his ministry, we're going to see that the people that were always questioning, opposing him, trying to trap him, it came from the religious leaders. Do you realize that? And so this is who John has in mind when he speaks of the Jews who are doing just that. And so the, this was made up primarily, you would think, of the, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court made up of about 70, made up of 71 members. And it, it encompassed the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, 
Pharisees and Sadducees were a part of that. We'll talk about the Pharisees coming up. But this is who John is talking about. And so the Jews now, they're sitting here, this religious body. They're all conferring with one another going, hey, something's amiss here. This is not right. Let's send out, you know, let's send out here the, the priests and the Levites to go and inquire of John. And find out what he's all about and who he really is. And so they ask him, who are you? Notice what John is quick to do. He's quick to just defer everything to Christ. Now, he could have had some fun with this. He could have said, yeah, you better believe I'm somebody important. Now, go get me my coffee. You know, like he could have had some fun with these Jews and sort of played it up a little bit. I think I would have been tempted to do that. But John, walking in this humility, is quick just to defer everything and say, listen, he denied and said, I am not the Christ. When they ask, who are you? John has an idea that they're wondering, are you the Christ? And, and understand something here. You might wonder, why are they asking if he's the Christ? Like, because at this point in time, there's many that are starting to have this idea. We're getting up to this point, based on what Old Testament scriptures said, that the Messiah must be coming on in the scene. Daniel chapter 9 gives us a great prophecy that when the, the, the decree goes out to go and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, there shall be 400 and... and uh, 480, no, 83 years? Am I right? 400 and, oh man, now I'm forgetting here. You get the idea. Look at Daniel 9. You'll find out about it, okay? 408 weeks, which is this group of seven years, all right? It ends up equaling 173,880 days, all right? So they get this number based on Daniel 9. From the time that this decree goes forth, which is laid out for us very clearly in God's word, count 173,880 days, you're going to end up seeing the Messiah. That was the day that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on Passover Sunday. So they've got this idea, this concept, this belief that we must start looking for the Messiah. He's got to be in our midst. This is leading up to these days. So there's this, this idea, this, this wonder, and John has his buzz about him. So they're thinking, is he the guy? Is he the one that we need to ask about the Messiah? And so John's quick just to, no, I'm not the Christ. So they're still wondering, well, there's something odd about you. Who are you then? And so they say in verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they're still kind of checking and wondering. Now, why would you think that's kind of an odd question to ask if he's Elijah? Why would they ever go there? Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, you know, and he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. So that'd be an odd thing. Elijah hasn't been on the scene in a long time. But... Again, there was a prophecy given about Elijah. It's in Malachi 4, verse 5, that said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So they're thinking, okay, we must be in the season that the Messiah must be emerging. Are you then Elijah? The guy's going to come before. And John, again, is quick to say, no, that's not me. Now, Elijah, indeed, in fact, Jesus even refers to John as being kind of a type of Elijah. But we know that Elijah is going to appear. He's going to appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And many believe that he's going to appear again before Jesus comes back at his second coming. During the tribulation, Revelation 11 reveals two witnesses that are going to come on the scene and begin to promote the gospel and point people to Jesus and repentance again. Many believe that Elijah is going to be one of those guys who's going to be there in Revelation during the tribulation. Before Christ comes again. Nevertheless, he says, I'm not Elijah. Well, what about the prophet? And they're not asking, are you a prophet? 
Notice they say, are you the prophet? Again, they were expecting one to come on the scene. Based on Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, when Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Again, speaking of Jesus Christ, but John is quick to say, I'm not him. That's not me. There will come one on the scene with the same kind of, uh, of power and authority as Moses and, and greater than Moses. But that's not John, he's saying. It's not me. And so they're saying in verse 22, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? They're all going, listen, we're, we're getting a little bit desperate now. We got to have something to report back to our, our, our leaders or else we're going to look like fools. And John's probably going, you don't need my help for that. You're kind of a lost cause. But no, they're saying, give us an answer. Give us something that we can say to them. And so John now, it's like, there's one verse that you kind of have overlooked. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And John refers to it here in verse 23. Read that with me. It says, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah has said. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, this idea of kind of, you know, making that that path straight well it it was a common practice when when kings would come into a town and, and they would want to make the way very smooth for that king that they wouldn't have any kind of hiccups or problems or you know chariots flipping over because of a pothole in the ground so they would smooth things out they would make sure every kind of uh, of obstacle was removed so there'd be smooth journeying isaiah uses this passage to refer and speak about the captives in babylon that would be returning back to jerusalem soon and he says clear up anything that's going to get in the way or hinder you from coming and just receiving all that God has for you. And this becomes a ministry now of John the Baptist, where he's looking to prepare people for the coming of Jesus Christ, to receive that there wouldn't be anything that would be a, a roadblock, there wouldn't be any kind of obstacle or things that would not pre, uh, uh, allow just that smooth entrance for Jesus to come into the hearts of people. That's what he's calling them to do. So John is that voice crying out. He's not the Christ. He's not the prophet. He's a voice. And all he's seeking to do is point people to Jesus. That's a great ministry right there. We don't have to, you know, have it all together, be, be completely, you know, quoting scriptures left, right, and center, or have gone to seminary. We just need to be a voice that's, Speaking of Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. And notice, it's a voice in the wilderness. This is here John ministering in the, in the Judean wilderness that was very dry, very barren, very desolate. But I love that because this is where the gospel is going out to. This is, this is where this message is reaching out to. You see, Jesus isn't coming just for those that have it all together. He's coming to those that are dry, desperate, desolate, that are without hope and he's coming to provide that hope for them it's a great picture of really the condition of humanity apart from christ isn't it that we're dry we're desolate and we need jesus every person needs to come to those terms themselves so they can come to christ to realize i'm lost i'm empty i'm hurting without jesus and so john is preparing them make straight the way of the lord 
Now, it says there in verse 24, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, the Pharisees were those people that really sought to maintain the law. They wanted to uphold their, their Old Testament and, and live by every single word, every single letter. Judaism in Jesus' day was divided into various sects. It's almost like denominations. The Pharisees, they were a group that held to that very strict interpretation of Scripture. They were orthodox. They were fundamentalist. They were legalistic. And often, they were very hypocritical because what they began to do, they began to, to just focus on living in an outward way. They would apply Scriptures when it fit them but they would break many of them when nobody was seeing or knowing or kind of they were able to hide it. And so they began, became very hypocritical. They began to live in a way where they received the praise rather than God. And Jesus had to confront them and challenge them many times. And we'll see that as we go through the Gospel of John. That these were the ones that Jesus had to speak really strongly towards. The religious leaders, the ones that should have had it all together. But it became nothing more than just a... A outward work, emotion that elevated them rather than promoting God. So they see John baptizing. Now, this kind of threw them a little bit. They're like, wait a second here. Now, baptism was a common thing in that day. Uh, many of the Jews, they, they would do it in a way of kind of ritual cleansing. Sometimes they would fully immerse themselves in water. But also, it was the Gentiles that would get baptized. It was the Gentiles that would get baptized when they were converting to Judaism. So a Gentile comes along, they see a Jew, they're like, you know what, I really like this faith. I really like this, you know, belief in one God. I want to I wanna be like that. And so the Gentiles would be baptized. But here's John the Baptist, and he's baptizing other Jews. And so the Pharisees, the ones that are strictly interpreting the law or living up, trying to live by, they're like, wait a second. Jews don't need to be baptized. We got it all together. We don't need... Why are you doing that, John? And they're questioning him and challenging him on this. And notice what John says. John says in verse 26, listen. I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So, John simply declares, hold on a second, guys. He's not, he's not looking to undermine the law. He's just baptizing the water. It's a preliminary and preparatory work for Jesus Christ. But he says, and again, in great humility, never looking to put any attention or prominence on him. He says, there's one coming who's going to do the greater work. And he says, listen, he's here now. He's in our midst. But you see, nobody knew the identity of Jesus just yet. And John repeats his humility that, that he wasn't even worthy now to loose the strap of Jesus' sandals. And understand that it's very significant. In our day, we're just kind of like, no, no biggie. But in this day, it was the job of the lowest slave to... Wash the feet of the guests that came into the house. Removing the sandals. It was an awful job to do because they would be walking through the dirty, dusty roads with open sandals. I mean, and they're not, they're not 
They're not showering regularly. So at times you get somebody coming to your house that you don't know what you're washing off those feet, man. You're like, oh my goodness, what am I touching here? And so it was the job of a little slave. Rabbis who would have disciples, students that were, you know, coming alongside them, the rabbis were permitted basically to ask the student to do whatever they wanted and the student would have to do it except that job right there. That wasn't even something that a student would do for his rabbi. Wasn't permitted to do it. It's the job of the low slave. So what John is saying is, I'm not even worthy. Jesus is so much greater than I that I am even less than the lowest of the slaves in comparison to who Jesus is. So John is constantly looking just to promote and elevate Jesus and say, listen guys, don't look to me. I'm nothing here. Or maybe I'll be doing a, a, a work of baptism, but I'm just trying to prepare people's hearts to receive Jesus. It's a work of, of repentance and getting ready to receive Jesus. So this is the attitude uh, of John here. Now look at verse, verse 29. Because here in verse 29 now, we, we've seen the inquiry of the Jews. Who are you, John? What are you all about? What's going on? But now verse 29, we, we begin to see the identification by John as he again begins to make known who this Jesus is. The next day, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. When John saw Jesus coming onto the scene, he declared that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty heavy title to bear. And John would repeat that often. I think probably every time he saw Jesus, he was probably like, hey, there's the Lamb of God. In other words, he's reminding Jesus of his very mission on earth, that he would come and be a sacrifice. I'm, I'm wondering if Jesus at times like, hey, John, just take it easy a little bit here. Let's just, let's just not, not rush this a little bit here. That's going to come, but just easy now on this whole sacrifice stuff. All right, let me just do some other stuff. For, but John is constantly reminding Jesus of his very mission, of his very purpose for being there. Now, the Jews were very familiar with this idea of a sacrificial lamb that would come and deal with sin because that's the theme that's really running through all of Scripture. Abraham was instructed to take his son, his only son Isaac, up on a mountain and sacrifice him. There on Mount Moriah, the same place that Jesus would be sacrificed. Go and sacrifice your son. As they're going up, notice what we read in Genesis 22, verse 78. Then he, Isaac, said, Hey, look, pops, we got the fire, we got the wood. But uh, probably a little nervous. See, Dad, where's, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for burnt offering, for a sacrifice? And Abraham said, my, my, my son, God, will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering or for a sacrifice. And, and if you look in the original, there's no provide the word for. In other words, it, it could better be read that Abraham says to his son, my God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, for a sacrifice. And he would do that in and through his son, Jesus Christ, who became that lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Exodus chapter 12 goes through the, the great Passover and how they were called to take a lamb, bring it in the house and then sacrifice it, take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house. And those that did would have the destroyer pass over them and spare their firstborn. 
So this idea of a lamb being sacrificed was a prominent theme. People were familiar with that. But those sacrifices were done to atone for sin, to cover sin. But what does John say? Here is the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Takes away who removes it. Who doesn't just provide a covering, but he just completely removes it, cleanses it. That's what Jesus has come to do. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25 to 26, not that, that he, Jesus, should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I love what we read in Hebrews when we read that he, he did that once for all. One time is all it takes. One sacrifice that provides forgiveness for all that repent and put their trust in Jesus. That's who Jesus is. That's what he came to do. This is who John is seeking to identify and make known. You know, when John was, the writer of the gospel, John was taken up to heaven in a vision in Revelation. What does he see? He sees a lamb emerge from the throne, a lamb as though he was slain. Takes the the scroll, the title deed to the earth, and it says that people began to sing out, worthy is the lamb. How I love that. In Genesis, the question is, where's the lamb? In John's gospel, it's behold the lamb. In Revelation, it's worthy is the lamb. And he truly is worthy of all of our praise, devotion, of our very lives because Jesus came to be the final and full payment for our sin. Only a sacrifice could provide that. And Jesus came as that sinless perfect sacrifice, fully God, fully man, to atone for our sin, not just to cover, but to remove our sin. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so he's removed our sin from us, our transgressions from us. You see, as far as the east is from the west, you think, well, how far is that? I don't know, because if you head east, you will keep heading east. You will never hit west. You just keep going east. If you head west, You'll never reach east. You'll never come to a stop. You just keep going west for eternity. As far as the east is from the west, there's no joining point. So far as he removed our transgression or sin from us. That's what Jesus has done. Worthy is the lamb. So John here, again, he, he speaks the truth that when he says that in verse, in verse, um, oh, in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now that's, again, sounds kind of confusing. We touched on that last week. But John, who was born six months before Jesus and is a cousin to Jesus, John could say, he's before me because he's preferred. In other words, John recognized that though I was born physically before him, Jesus is eternal, pre-existing. He's got no beginning. So he's preferred. He's the guy. He's the one you need to look to. Don't look to me. It's Jesus. It's all wrapped up in him, centered in him. So John came simply baptizing in water 
a baptism of repentance, a preparatory work preparing people for Jesus. And it was through John's baptism that Jesus was identified to him. Notice what we read in verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John recalls the moment that he baptized Jesus. He doesn't write about it in the Gospel of John. It's already happened in, in kind of our context and where we're at in the chronology of the life of John and Jesus. But John was told by God that he who the Spirit comes and rests upon and descends upon, he's the one who is coming to do the greater work of baptizing with the Holy Spirit. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Okay, And understand, the Spirit came upon him in, in a way, it wasn't a dove, as many people like to see the picture of the little dove just coming down and just resting. Ah, so it's a, the Spirit coming upon him like a dove. And then, the icing on the cake, verse 11, Mark chapter 1, then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So John, now as he's baptizing Jesus, right away is like, this is the guy that God said, when you see this happen, he's the one. Now John says something interesting, I did not know him. Except God told me. Now, understand, John knew Jesus. They grew up together. They're cousins. They're family. They probably had family dinners together. They probably traveled to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the feast together. John knew Jesus, but what John is implying is that I did not know that he was the Christ. That he's the one that God had sent. I knew who Jesus is. But now, through the baptism, he knows this is the one that God's anointed. And that's the very term Christ. It means anointed. The Hebrew is Messiah. John's recognizing that he is not just the son of God, but he's God the son. He's deity. He's God. He's divine. Now I want you to catch something here. The Holy Spirit remained on Jesus and it says it twice there for us to really understand that the Spirit remained on Jesus because up until this time, all through the Old Testament, you see Old Testament saints that were filled with the Spirit for a specific time and a specific purpose. And it came upon specific people. But it never remained with them. But Jesus was going to come and do a work where he would baptize in the Spirit to where the Holy Spirit would be poured out. I'm going to get to that maybe a little bit later here. We'll talk more about this work of the Holy Spirit but Jesus has come to bring salvation, to secure our, our righteous standing before God. And the Holy Spirit just comes upon us to equip us and empower us to live this life for Jesus and appoint people to Jesus, just like John is doing. John would say, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's exactly what John the Baptist does next. Read on here, look with me, as we now look at the invitation from Jesus. Verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, John said, behold the Lamb of God. There he is repeating it. She's like, John, John, just tone it down a little bit, okay? God, we know, we get it. The, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. John 
had a great following. He had disciples. He had people that were following along, tracking with him. But now what does John do? He says, hey guys, he's got two disciples with him. He says, hey guys, check it out. The Lamb of God. And basically he's like saying, stop wasting your time with me. Don't follow me. You follow Jesus. That's the mark of a good leader right there. Where we're not trying to say, follow me. Stay with me. It's look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Be in Jesus. John is saying, that's the one that you want to follow. Then Jesus turned and and he saw them following. And he said to them, hey, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Now, John likes to do this a little bit. He likes to kind of use a a, a common kind of Hebrew, uh, Greek word and, and translate it. Because again, he's not writing just to the Jews. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles. This is kind of a universal gospel. This is so that the whole world will know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So John is writing to everybody. So he, as he's writing to, to Jews, Jews get the rabbi thing, but the Gentiles, he's like, oh, listen, by the way, rabbi, it means teacher. So he, he likes to translate these things to show, again, he's, he's writing to all these people. And these disciples are asked by Jesus, what do you seek? Basically, Jesus is saying, what are you looking for? Or, or more so, like, what are you looking to find in life? What's your need? What do you seek? And they're like, well, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? And basically, they're saying, we just want to hang out with you. We want to come and spend some time with you. And you see, Jesus, I mean, he's God, right? He knows these guys. And he knows their heart already. We'll see later on as we get through the rest of the chapter. Maybe we should. Uh, the rest of the chapter that Jesus knows these people intimately, inside and out. So he knows these two following him. He's not asking this question because he's needing information. He's asking this question because he's seeking to draw them into confession. Into simply revealing what they're looking for. It's like what God did with Adam in the very beginning. Adam, where are you? I mean, was Adam really good at hide and seek? God was like, dude, this guy, man, he's, he's got me on this one. Where are you? No, God knew exactly where he is, but he's drawing Adam in a confession. What's going on? How did you know that you're naked? How, what's, what's changed? He's drawing Adam in confession, just as with these two disciples. What are you looking for? And, and so too, Jesus wants us to come to him. And share a heart with them. Say, Jesus, this is the, the need of my life here. And basically, Jesus is wanting us to realize that everything we need is wrapped up, it's found in him. And so they come, and what does Jesus say when, he, when they say, where are you staying? We just want to hang out with you. What does Jesus say? I love this, verse 39. And then he said to them, come and see. Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained within that day. And it was about the 10th hour. Come and see. I love that. Because Jesus never restricts anyone from coming to him. He doesn't set up interviews and say, listen, I need to to check your your credentials. I need to see if you qualify. I need to see if you check all the prerequisites before coming to me. Jesus doesn't do that. The invitation is given for all people to come and just come and see. 
Come and see. Well, what about this, Jesus? What about that? How is this going to happen? Stop worrying about that. Just come and see. Come and check it out for yourself. And the invitation is given. And the invitation is given all through God's word. Um, Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Revelation 22, verse 17. Right at the end of the book, the Bible. Again, just a reminder, in case you missed it. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Who's allowed to come? Whoever. Anybody. Everybody. Jesus is sitting there saying, please, just come. The invitation is given. What's holding you back? What are you seeking? Because what you're seeking, what you're needing, you're going to find in me. Come. Now notice these disciples came and saw and says that they remained there in verse 39. Now John has used an, an interesting word for when the disciples asked where Jesus was staying. He used this Greek word, meno, which he used 66 times in the gospel and in his epistles for 2 John that he, that he writes there. And this word, you know, it definitely means that it's basic definition to stay or dwell. It, it can be to last or continue, but more often it has a theological connotation to it, which again means to remain, to continue, or to abide. Abide. So these disciples are in a sense saying, Jesus, where are you staying? Because we want to continue with you. We want to be with you. We want to abide with you. This is what they're saying. These words staying and remained, they're the same Greek word meno. To continue. To abide. That's really where we experience the, the fruitful, blessed life in Jesus when we are abiding in Him. So often we're coming to Jesus on a Sunday or intermittently through the week. But what Jesus is calling us to do is abide. Continue in me. That's where you find the blessed, fruitful life in Christ. Well, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, Hey, we found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, I love Andrew. Andrew has a great ministry in God's word. Andrew was the brother of Simon, and Simon Peter, he's the guy that oftentimes gets the recognition. In fact, how's Andrew described here? Simon Peter's brother, right? Anybody got big brothers that you're always like, oh, you're so-and-so's brother. And like, uh, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> I got a name too, but no big deal, you know. So, but this is how Andrew's, he kind of lives in the shadow of his brother. But Andrew has such a blessed role in ministry because what do we see Andrew doing in Scripture? Bringing people to Jesus. He did it with the young boy and the loaves and the fishes. He brings them to Jesus. The Greeks who were seeking Jesus, Andrew brings them to Jesus. Andrew comes to Peter. His brother says, hey, guess what? We found him. 
We found the Messiah. Come on. And he brought him to Jesus. That's a great ministry. Again, Andrew, you don't hear sermons from Andrew. You don't hear this theological prowess of Andrew. You see Andrew simply saying, I can point you to the guy you need. Let's go. He brings people to Jesus. That's a wonderful ministry to have. You may not know, how do I, how do, I do these things? What a, but you can just bring them to Jesus. Say, point them to Jesus. You need to look to him. Check out who he is. Look at God's word. Bring people to Jesus. Andrew had a great, simple, but effective ministry. And he brought his brother, who, in turn, does great things, right? Simon becomes a, a, a dynamic guy. Now, it wasn't always that way. I mean, Peter comes, his name's Simon, and what does Jesus say? Simon, great name, but we're going to change that. And that often happened, didn't it, with people that God used? Change the name. And so, he says, you're going to be named Cephas, which is translated a stone, or Petros, which is where we get the word Peter. Now, Peter was anything but a rock right now. He was about as stable as water, Right? He, this guy, Peter, was not the guy that you want to be hinging your ministry on right now because Jesus oftentimes in his earthly ministry had to kind of clean up after Peter, right? Peter, would you just put the sword away? Find me that guy's ear. Let's put that back on now. I mean, Jesus is having to clean up after Peter. He's not the rock. But, but, Jesus saw exactly who Peter would become in and through Jesus and more so in and through the Holy Spirit. You're going to be the rock. I love that. Because Jesus doesn't see us for who we are, but for who we're going to be. Isn't that great? He doesn't look at us based on our actualities, but rather on his possibilities. Jesus sees you for who you're going to be in and through him. I'm so glad for that. Don't put, don't put all the stock in who you are. Say, man, I got a great God who can do great things in me and through me for him. Now, as Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, Jesus begins to work in them and, and just call them. Look at verse 43. The following day now, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Isn't that great? So here we have Nathanael. Uh, Philip coming to Nathanael. And we found him. It's kind of funny though, isn't it? Because what do we read there in verse 43? That Jesus found Philip. Jesus found Philip. Jesus does the calling, the inviting. And then Philip says, hey, we found him, right? And we like to think that sometimes, oh, we found Jesus. And, and yes, we understand what we're saying, but we're so glad that Jesus found us and called us and saved us, right? So Philip comes to Nathaniel and Nathaniel's. He's got a little bit of doubt. You know, it's like, pff, wait a second. You found him? He, he's in Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, Nazareth in that day had a, a, a pretty bad reputation. You know, a, a place where 
Roman soldiers would kind of come and sort of, you know, have their weekend reprieve or whatever. And just, it was not a, a very kind of respectable place. And still to this day, you know, you, you got to be a little bit careful in Nazareth. You stay with your group. You keep your wallet close. You know, it's just, it's kind of got still that sort of reputation. And so Nathan was asking, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what, is, what does Philip say? Just repeats what Jesus has said. Come and see. Listen, we're not going to get in a debate. We're not going to discuss all these different ideas and thoughts. Just come and check it out. Right? And so we see in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite, indeed uh, in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's so cool. Jesus shows that he is aware of who people are. He knows us inside and out. He knows us intimately. We love to think that we can hide out. And we can hide out in our sin. And we are good at putting on a facade, putting on a mask and making everything look super good, that we're really holy, when we've got issues. And Jesus cuts right through and he sees and he knows. We're not fooling anybody. But God wants to help you. God wants to take care of that. God wants to bring cleansing in your life and renew you if we come to him and we confess and we repent. Jesus does that work. Don't think that you can hide out. You might pull the wool over one another's eyes, but you never will under the Lord because he sees. Before Philip even called you, Nathaniel, I saw exactly what you were doing, sitting under the fig tree. You were picking your nose too. It was kind of gross, but... I'll keep that between you and I. I don't know. But And Nathaniel, so what does Jesus say? Here's an Israelite in whom is no deceit. In whom is no deceit. And, and Nathaniel's a guy, he's just like, he just speaks the truth. He's an honest, upright guy. And he's not even, he's not even kind of, you know, hit by this. Like if it was me, I'd be kind of like, oh, thank you. Tell me a little bit more about myself, you know? That sounds nice. But, but Nathaniel's just like, how do you know me? How do you know me? He kept, just cuts right to the chase. What's going on here? And Jesus reveals to him. Remember, before Philip came to you, where were you? Yeah, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. I see it all. I know you better than you know yourself. And so Nathaniel, he recognizes now. That got his heart and his attention Verse 49, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Basically, Jesus is saying to him, You haven't seen anything yet. You know when Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom is no deceit? In the Septuagint translation... It says, Behold, there's a, in whom is no Jacob. Jacob, interesting. Remember Jacob, the patriarch of Israel? Jacob's name means heel catcher, supplanter. He was a deceiver. Today, we would call him a con man. That's who Jacob was. And, and Jesus says, Behold, a man in whom is no Jacob. He's upright. 
But now what's interesting is Jesus gives an illustration from the life of Jacob. Because when Jacob was running and hiding out from his brother Esau, God gives him this vision that heaven was over this ladder ascending, uh, going up to heaven and, and angels ascending, descending on this ladder. In other words, God was letting Jacob know, Jacob, I'm here with you. My presence is here. You're not alone. I'm with you. And what Jesus is saying now to Nathaniel and to these disciples that are gathering, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the connecting point between heaven and earth. Where I am, you're going to see heaven and earth meet up. You're going to see incredible things. You think it's wonderful and great that I just exposed to you where you were? Listen, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to see greater things because where I am, this is where heaven and earth is touching. Jesus is the connecting point. Jesus would say in John 14, 6, that no one comes to the Father except through me. It's wrapped up in me. Greater things you will see. Now, let me just wrap this up here and and bring us back to what we saw earlier. Because it is important. I want to just hit on this here. John says in verse 33 that I didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending um, and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is a great work. And we'll get into this also in the book of John, but I think it's important that we get into this right now as well. Because we can oftentimes think of, well, how does this work? Jesus came, he brought salvation. He brought forgiveness of sin. He's done the greater work for us, but... Remember when Jesus was getting ready to ascend back to the Father. And his disciples were panicking. They're like, Jesus, no, hold on. You can't go? Because in case you missed it, you're kind of the one doing all the work. We're just along for the ride. We need you. But what does Jesus say? Listen, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another helper. That word is parakletos, one that comes alongside Another helper, one just like me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit that will come in your life and will fill you and empower you. Now, when we're saved, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, yes, the Holy Spirit is in us. Residing in Ephesians 1, verses 14 and 15, I think it is, tells us that the Holy Spirit becomes like that guarantee, that deposit, that God's going to continue on the work until we're with Him in heaven. So the Holy Spirit is residing in us. But then Jesus also, at the end of chapter, end of John, it says he breathed on his disciples and said, receive you the Holy Spirit. But then, and I believe that's when they were born again, when they were truly saved. But then in Acts 1, he tells the disciples, go and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in which you will receive power to be my witnesses. Jesus is talking about a secondary, a subsequent work to salvation of the Spirit coming upon them. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus desired to do, that John alludes to here. So I believe when we're saved, oh, we're in Jesus. The Holy Spirit residing in us, that seal, that mark of what God has done. But there's a Secondary work that's so important because it's the work that equips us, that empowers us to live a life as a witness. 
so often we can be going through life and we're just we're just fumbling along. That's not what the Lord has for us. He wants us to be empowered so we can live a Christ-like life. The reality is we have the Holy Spirit, but the question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? I need the Holy Spirit to be filling me, but overflowing in me, empowering me, just to live this life, because I can't do it on my own. But I know when He is empowering me, filling me, and man, I'm, I'm, I'm promoting Jesus. People are seeing Jesus, not me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's come to testify of Christ. And it's an ongoing work. It's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing work because Ephesians 5.18 tells us, don't be drunk with wine, in which is, dissipate, which is um, dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the idea is like be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing work. Why? Because as we go through life, man, as we're pouring out, well, we pour out. When we get bumped sometimes, we spill, we leak. And I need to be filled afresh and anew daily of His Holy Spirit. You know, when Jesus said, greater things you will do than me, I look at that and I go, wait a second, Jesus. Greater things you'll do? How is that possible? Last time I checked, I mean, I haven't been walking on water. I haven't raised anybody from the dead. I haven't multiplied any food. Food's multiplied me, but I haven't multiplied food. And so, how does this work? Greater things will do? I'm not, I haven't caught up yet. But what Jesus means when he says greater things will do is that when the Holy Spirit comes, no longer will it be one person in one location carrying out this work, but it's now going to be an entire group of people, the church, in the millions, going throughout the world, to all parts of the world, with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, carrying out the work of God. Greater things. Man, that's kind of been my, my prayer this, this year, as we move into 2019. Lord, I want to see you do great things. I want to see you doing great things. And He will do it in and through us. He wants to use each and every one of you. And I'm so thankful He's come and He's called us and He's invited us in to receive His salvation. But guys, there's so much more that He has for us. And He's given us His Holy Spirit to empower us, to enable us to live out that life, to see great, greater things to be involved in that greater work. Oh, may we be inviting Him in. May we be asking Him to fill us fresh and anew. And we're going to do that tonight, today. We're just going to take some time just to respond and ask the Lord just to do that work. I'll invite the worship team, if anybody's here, to come up. And uh, we'll just do a song. But this is a time, let's all stand together, a time just for us to, to respond and ask the Lord to fill us today, to do that work. To use us. We're thankful for salvation. If you're here today and you don't know that salvation of the Lord, understand that Jesus came as one of us, fully God yet fully man, to die on a cross. And in doing so, He paid the penalty for your sin. Sin brought death. But He paid the price for you. But He rose again, securing life. And all those that put their faith and their trust in Jesus to be the Lord and Savior, the one that forgives them of their sin, are saved. You're brought in the family of God. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, I encourage you, don't put that off. Accept that free invitation. It's a word, you don't have to do anything. You don't, you're not signing up to a church. You don't, you're not signing up to a religion. You're, you're attaching yourself to Jesus, trusting in His work 
that He's done for you to save you. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, I encourage you, I implore you, don't put that off. You never know when you'll have that time again. Invite Jesus in to be your Lord and Savior. Find life in Him. But let's take time now just to respond to all that He's done for us and continue to ask Him to fill us fresh and anew.